Welcome back everyone to week two of our um, study on grace for the afflicted by uh, Matthew Stanford and we'll be going over chapter three and chapter four today if you want if you have the book and you're following along or whatever you may be doing or just so you can know for yourself so here we are we're going to start at chapter three which is the secular and the sacred in today's society we use psychological terms and phrases very casually we talk about self-esteem hyperactive behavior and dysfunctional families when we are sad we usually say that we are depressed when we are stressed or worried we say that we have anxiety disorder psychiatry and medications are regularly prescribed by family physicians for what some would say are normal changes in mood leading many to wonder what mental illness really is in psychology and psychiatry we define a mental illness as a clinically significant disruption of a person's thoughts moods behavior or ability to relate to others severe enough to require treatment or intervention while many people will have significant changes in their thoughts emotions and relationships during a normal lifetime those changes are usually not severe enough to require treatment or intervention. A mental illness, on the other hand, is debilitating experience in which the person is simply unable to function normally over an extended period of time. Given the broad definition, one might wonder exactly how a person is diagnosed with a specific mental disorder such as schizophrenia. For the purpose of diagnosis and treatment, mental disorders have been categorized into groups according to their common symptoms in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, which is called the DSM-5. It's published by the American Psych Psychiatric Association. Within the DSM-5, there are 19 primary diagnostic categories. Some categories contain large numbers of disorders, while others contain few. The following are the primary diagnostic categories of the DSM-5. And I'm probably going to butcher a lot of these names, <laughs> so here we go. Neurodevelopmental disorders, which is autism spectrum disorder. Schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders bipolar and related disorders, depressive disorders, anxiety disorders, obsessive compulsive and related disorders, trauma and stress stressor related disorders, which is like post-traumatic stress disorder, disassociative disorders or disassociative identity disorder, somatic symptom and related disorders, which is conversion disorder, feeding and eating disorders, anorexia, um, elimination disorders, sleep-wake disorders, which would be narcolepsy, sexual uh, dysfunctions, which is erectile disorder, gender dysphoria, disruptive impulse con impulsive control and con conduct and conduct disorders, <laughs> which would be like kleptomania, Neurocognitive disorders, which is delirium. Personality disorders, which is the borderline personality disorder. Or a paraphilic disorders or pedophilia. Within each category, the criteria are, 
are uh, that must are, that is listed must be present for the person to be diagnosed with a specific mental disorder or major depressive disorder. The decision by a mental health professional to diagnose a person as suffering from a mental illness is not subject one, but rather is based on the presence of the observable mood, behavioral, and cognitive criteria described in the BSM-5. The specific criteria for many of these disorders will be outlines in, or outlined in later chapters. What causes mental disorders? Mental disorders result from a complex interaction of biological, which is nature and environmental uh, nurture factors. All people are born with differing degrees of biological vulnerabilities or predispositions for developing mental health or for developing mental health difficulties and disorders. Some individuals have a greater set of biological vulnerabilities than others. Having a biological vulnerability, uh, having biological biological vulnerabilities than others. Having a biological predisposition toward developing a mental disorder is not enough by itself to trigger the illness. Instead, an individual is born with, the less stress is needed to trigger the onset of the illness. Conversely, an individual is born with small biological predispositions, greater life stress is required to produce this the disorder. Until this critical level of stress has been reached, people will generally function normally, and their biological vulnerability will remain hidden. The Bible and Madness What we call mental illness today, a set of abnormal, extreme, and debilitating moods, thoughts, and behaviors was referred to as madness and insanity are referred to the 20 seven times are referred to 27 times in the Bible, 19 times in the Old Testament and eight times in the New Testament, and seven times in the De- Deuteronomical books. Much like modern day believers, the people of the biblical time struggled with understanding the spiritual aspects of mental illness. The ancient Hebrews knew that God had promised madness as one of the possible divine punishments for not obeying his commandments in Deuteronomy 28.28 and Zechariah 12.4. But they struggled with uh, differentiating madness as a result of divine punishment and or insane were generally seen as unrighteous and suffering under divine punishment. In Old Testament, two Hebrew words are most often used to identify this condition, saga and hala. I probably said that wrong. In 1 Samuel 21, 12 through 15, these words are used interchangeably to describe David's behavior before King Antrish. I probably said that wrong also. I, I'm so bad at this, but oh well. <laughs> David took these words to hear, uh, to heart, and greatly feared the king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely, which is hala, in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. The king said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman, Saga. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen, Saga, that you have brought this one to act the madman, Saga, in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? Individuals displaying abnormal moods, thoughts, and behaviors, the mentally ill were clearly known throughout biblical history. 
Today, those same abnormal thoughts and behaviors have been categorized into a set of specific mental disorders for which many effective interventions and treatments have been developed. Mental health research and practice have made significant strides in relieving the mental and physical suffering of those afflicted with mental illness. Yet, there continues to be high level of suspicion, distrust, and even fear in the church when it comes to psychology and psychiatry. The simple fact is that Christians develop mental illness at the same rates seen in the general population and adamations such as, you need to pray more, or this is just a result of a lack of faith, are ineffective in dealing with this problem. the mentally ill were viewed in biblical times. The people of the Bible were culturally and religiously very different from modern day believers. Lacking knowledge of science and the functions of the brain, they struggled to understand the strange and extreme behaviors displayed by individuals they referred to as mad or insane. Despite the enormous differences between biblical times and today, the views of modern believers toward those living with mental illness are, unfortunately, quite similar to their biblical counterparts. For example, we commonly use derogatory terms such as crazy, nuts, and retard in our everyday language. These terms express contempt and disrespect towards individuals living with mental health difficulties, even if we are not speaking directly to them. Two references to mental illness appear in the Bible. These include the one attributed to the Roman governor, Festus, which I probably said wrong as well, Acts 26, 24 through 25, and another in Acts 12, 15, where the slave girl Rhonda is said to be out of your mind when she says the imprisoned Peter is knocking on the door. These examples suggest that the mentally ill of the biblical times were shamed and stigmatized because of their illness, much like they are today. Prior to the advent of effective treatments for mental illness, individuals suffering from these conditions were often physically restrained out of fear or to keep them from harming themselves or others. We see two references of this in scripture in Jeremiah 29, 26 and Mark 5, 1 through 10. In many countries, the mentally ill are still either physically restrained by their families with ropes or chains or warehoused in asylums. I have personally toured the asylums of North Africa where the mentally ill live in bad conditions, concrete block rooms, and blankly stare at you from behind iron bars. Prior to the 1960s and deinstitutionalization, it wasn't much different in the United States. Scientific Fact and Biblical Truth Before going any further, I would like to clarify that God's revealed word, not science or the DSM-5, is the final authority on the truth. Through the scriptures, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the character of God, human nature, the consequences of sin, and our redemptive history, and the humanity and divinity of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and their purpose is not not to give us all uh, factual truth. For instance, they don't tell us how our heart or liver work. While the truth of the scripture goes beyond the theological um, to include historical facts, but the B- Bible was never meant to be an 
encyclopedia of all factual knowledge, but it does instruct us in the most important of truths. There is a God who loves us completely and who sacrificed himself for us. St. Augustine said, all truth is, is God's truth. This statement has often mis- been misused and abused by those who would hold humans' truth to be equal with God's. What Augustine meant was that the way my heart functions, the process by which a seed gr- is grown into a mature plant, and the fact that the earth is in um, an orbit around the sun and are all truths based in the creative power and the majesty of God. Romans 1.20 says, Psychiatry. While both priests and physicians have struggled to care for individuals with madness since the beginning of civilization, psychiatry as a medical discipline is actually quite young. In 1808, the German physician Jana Christine Riel coined the term psychiatry, which means the medical treatment of the soul, as was true of of much of medicine at the time. Treatments were undeveloped, harsh, and generally ineffective. For most of the first century of its existence, psychiatry concerned itself with severely disordered individuals confined to asylums or hospitals. A significant change occurred in psychiatry at the beginning of the 20th 20th century. Sigmund Frida's development of psych psychoanalytical psychotherapy for the first time gave psychiatrists a treatment to use with mentally ill individuals functioning well enough not to be institutionalized, giving birth to outpatient psychiatry. The later 1950s saw the second major change in psychiatric treatment with the development of the uh, psychoactive medication. For the first time, an effective treatment was available for the most severely ill institutionalized patients. As a result, state mental hospitals rapidly emptied and as the medicated patients returned to the community. Today we refer to this event, which occurred in, primarily in 1960s and 1970s, as deinstitutionalization. Until the 1990s, all psychiatrists were trained in talk therapy, which is psychotherapy, as well as the prescribing of a psychiatric medication to treat mental disorders. Today, due to the advances in neuroscience and the massive pro-life oration of medications, psychiatrists are still trained to use psychotherapy in their practices. However, research has shown that in the treatment of mental disorders, often the best course of action is a combination of medication and psychotherapy. That is why a team approach to treatment that includes both psychiatrists and clinical psychologists is so important. Clinical psychology. Clinical psychology can be defined as a field of practice and research that applies um, psychological principles to the assessment, treatment, and prevention of psychological distress and um, dysfunctional behavior. Clinical psychologists also work to enhance psychological and uh, physical well-being. The basic mission of a clinical um, psychology is to help people live healthier lives. Clinical psychologists treat clients who have mental illness or struggle with psychological problems by using some form of talking therapy, generally referred to as psychotherapy. 
Psychotherapy can be done by many different types of mental health professionals, including clinical psychologists or other therapists such as clinical social workers and licensed counselors. Christians and Psychotherapy A Christian who seeks out a therapist for help with mental illness or psychological problem must remember that the ultimate goal of a psychotherapy of psychotherapy is to change one's thoughts and behaviors. Psychotherapy comes into conflict with the scripture most often as a result of the of personal beliefs of the therapist. A study by two research psychologists found that a therapist's personal religious beliefs affected the psychotherapeutic approach they choose to practice. Therapists who held to more Eastern or mystical beliefs tend to take humanistic ex existential approach. This is easy to understand since the approach emphasizes self-healing. Therapists with con- uh, a conservative Christian belief were more, more likely to practice cognitive behavioral therapy, while those who used a, sci- a psychoanalytical approach were best described as non-religious. So although the type of therapy a client receives is important, the more important uh, facet is the personal religious beliefs held by the therapist. As the study in, as the study indicates, therapists' personal religious beliefs affect the type of therapy they practice. If a therapist is not a Christian, it is likely that their beliefs concerning faith will be contrary to scripture, and they will not be able to recognize that the true change is grounded in Christ. I recommend that a Christian seeking therapy find a therapist who shares their same faith. I'm not saying that Christians should go only to therapists who who are uh, designate themselves as a Christian counselor, whether they're fair therapist overtly integrates biblical principles into their particular um, psychotherapeutic approach is not the most important criteria for choosing a psychologist. It is more important that therapists be sensitive to the spiritual issues that may be a part of the recovery process and that uh, that they guide the client down a pathway of change in line with God's word. I would also like to add to this from somebody who has sought out therapy and I have been to a therapist which we will talk about later on in this podcast we have a a couple episodes that are planned on therapy and other things which I won't delve too much into but I would like to say that I think it is very important that if you are going to seek out counseling that you need to find someone that believes what you believe and I believe what we just read really makes that statement true because uh, I have seen so many people that have gone to therapy that they they go and um, they fall out of truth because of what the therapist told them. And they no longer hold standards or, or believe what we believe anymore. So I think it is a very good thing to find someone who believes your same belief system, whether that be Pentecostal or whatever. You may be listening to this and you're not apostolic, um, but um, I just think it would be a very good suggestion to do that. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. God's majesty is reflected in how our brain cells function. The biological 
and environmental factors that affect the information or the formation of our personalities, the mechanicism um, by which memories are brought to our minds, and the precise balance of brain chemicals that are the foundation of our thoughts and behaviors. Chapter 4 A Cake of Figs. When I was looking to God to heal me, my pastor explained that healing from God can come in a form of doctors and medication. She has taken me to the hospital when I was required inpatient care and has been there to support me and remind me of God's enduring love and lasting grace when I was feeling poorly. Janet, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia. When people I meet, find out I am a clinical neuroscientist. This is Dr. Matthew's words, not mine. <laughs> they often ask me questions about the brain and mental illness. It is a topic almost everyone is interested in, and I, of course, love to talk about what I do. Science is cool. I have been asked all kinds of questions such as, is it true that we only use 10% of our brain and what causes a person to be a serial killer? A common question I'm asked by people of faith is, should a Christian take psychiatric medication to treat a mental problem? I have found over the years that when people ask that question, they actually are interested in knowing two things. One, are mental disorders real illnesses with with a biological basis? And two, does the use of medication to treat a mental disorder show lack of faith in the healing power of God? Now, you may be saying to yourself, this really can't be controversy. Uh, Medications are helpful. They relieve suffering. Only an extremist would believe that you shouldn't take medication for mental illness. But I can assure you that this is a serious matter in the church that impacts mentally ill believers and their families every day. In an online survey I conducted of nearly 300 Christians who are mentally ill or who have a family member who is mentally ill, approximately 25% said their church either discouraged or forbids the use of psychiatric medication. That percentage equals one out of every four churches. Think of how many people that affects. Some of my own friends have been told by their pastor that they did not need to take medication for illness such as bipolar disorder. This is serious and potentially life-threatening issue we as the body of Christ must come to terms with. What is the answer? Should a Christian take medication to treat mental illness? To answer this question, let's begin by looking at the, bi- uh, at the biology of behavior. Made up of billions of individual neurons and weighing about three pounds, the human brain is an amazing example of God's creative power and genius. Our brains are similar in many ways to other organs in our bodies. All of our organs, including the brain, require uh, nutrients and oxygen from our blood. Like the heart, many of these brain, uh, many of the brain's functions are electrical in nature. Similar to their liver, the brain is is sensitized to being damaged by environmental toxins and the addictive substances such as alcohol. But while similarly in many 
uh, respects, the brain is also quite different from our other organs. Neuroscientists myself, like myself, which would be Matthew, not me, <laughs> um, included, have barely scratched the surface in our attempts to understand its complexity. It is in a very real sense the master organ controlling our psychology, our heart rate, respiration, and producing our thoughts and feelings. I can understand how people may think of our brain in a much different way than they think of our stomach or pancreas. There is an immaterial aspect to the brain and that is a dif- it's difficult to comprehend. As I discussed in the first chapter, it is the brain that our physical self interacts with, our immaterial in- or non-physical self, mind and spirit. Far too often in the Christian community, we have ignored or minimized how our uh, biological process influence our behavior. We have wrongly defined behavior as having solely controversy around treating mental illness begins. Is mental illness a real illness? In my experience, I have found that there are five common reasons why people in Christianity and in the Christian community tend to deny the legitimacy of mental disorders and attribute them to the and attribute the abnormal thoughts and actions of the mentally ill to sin or a lack of faith denying the legitimacy of mental disorders the following are common reasons Christians deny the legitimacy of mental disorders No specific medical tests exist to diagnose an individual with a given mental disorder. There does not seem to be consistency in diagnosis across individuals. Psychiatric medications are not always effective in treating mental disorders. Not all abnormal behavior is the result of a brain disorder. Psychiatry and psychology are secular by nature and legitimize sinful behavior. Let's look at these concerns individually. The first is the belief that a non-specific medical test exists that can diagnose an individual with a given mental disorder. In other words, there's no brain blood pressure or mental blood test that can tell us that a person has, for instance, major depressive disorder. Some in the Christian community have said there is no such thing as a chemical imbalance or a neuromedical abnormality among psychiatric diagnoses. This is simply not true. While it is true that presently we do not have a blood test or a brain scan specific enough to be used on an individual patient for diagnosis, a number of chemical imbalances in neuroanatomical abnormalities, those are some big words, have been shown to contribute to the mental disorder. These will be discussed in detail in later chapters. The lack of medical tests for a disorder is not evidence the disorder does not exist. Mental disorders and traditional medical disease are diagnosed in a very similar manner, using a set of scientifically deprived symptoms or criteria. Blood tests and brain scans are often used to rule out potential causes of the mental illness, which is um, like infection or brain tumors or epilepsy. Psychiatry and psychology aren't voodoo. They are science, and a science insists on uh, verifiable uh, data. That being said, even science can be abused and misused. The accuracy of the diagnosis will always be contingent on the quality and training of the mental health care provider. 
A second reason people of faith tend to deny, deny the legitimacy of mental disorders is that the, a diagnosis in one person may look very different from the same diagnosis in another. In other words, there does not seem to be consistency in diagnosis across individuals. Given the variability between people in psychology and the environment, there can also be a variability in how a particular disorder may manifest itself. This occurs not only in psychiatric disorders, but also in traditional medi medical diseases. However, no matter how variable the manifested behaviors and thoughts may seem, the core features of the disorder will always be present. A third reason people of faith tend to deny the legitimacy of mental disorders is that psychiatric medication do not always seem to be effective in treating them. In fact, prescribing psych uh, psychiatric medications often appears to be a guessing game, with the patient trying a large number of medications before an effective treatment is found. Like many traditional medical problems, a vast complexity of the brain makes it possible for a disorder to result from an imbalance in a single neurotransmitter or a combination of several. This disorder such as depressive anxiety and psychosis are better thought of as general categories, each describing a number of underlying sub-disorders with a common set of core symptoms. These variables make tailoring treatment to the individual patient necessary. Another cause of this apparent ineffectiveness in treatment is related to the problem of over-prescribing. Given present uh, societal trends and the direct marketing practices of pharmaceutical companies, many people experiencing minor mood changes seek psychiatric medication for their regular physician. This has led to mass overprescribing of antidepressants, especially to women, for brief periods of sadness and psychostimulants to poorly behaved non-compliant children. The overuse of medication is not a problem unique to psychiatry. Two decades of overprescribing antibiotics to children from non-bacterial infections has led to an increased drug resistance in certain illnesses. This problem is again related to the quality and training of the medical health professionals. A quality assessment leads to an accurate diagnosis that results in an effective treatment, whether it is for an ear infection or bipolar disorder. A fourth reason people of faith tend to deny the legitimacy of mental disorders is that not all abnormal behavior is the result of brain disorder. And this is true. A person can learn to think and behave abnormally with a perfectly normal brain. For example, children exposed to abuse or high stress environments, which would be poverty or high crime, have higher rates of psychological problems later in life. Our brains are designed to adapt to our thoughts and behaviors to our environment. So sometimes exposure to bad environments results in the development of what can we consider mental illness. The basis of the current approach to mental disorders, or what some would call the medical model, insists that all mental illness are, are brain diseases that must be treated with medication. But I would say that if wrong behavior can be learned, it can also be unlearned, and an appropriate psychological treatment can play an important role. Again, the origin of the problem, which is learned or biological, does not dismiss the fact that it is a serious problem that must be addressed. A fifth and final reason I believe Christians tend to deny the legitimacy of mental disorders is they are concerned that the designation 
mental illness is simply another tool the world uses to dismiss or legitimize sinful behavior. Although I believe that this is a legitimate concern, we need to be careful to separate sin from illness. It is not a sin to be ill, even mentally ill. On the other hand, mental illness, whether it is a learned pattern or abnormal thinking or a biological disorder, does not dismiss sinful behavior. Leviticus 5.17 In summary, the concerns Christians have about mental disorders vary from the incorrect to the legitimate. Mental disorders are indeed real illnesses that in many instances have biological origin. Science's limited understanding of the cause of these disorders is not a reason to dismiss their existence, and Christians must always allow scripture not in the world to define what is sinful, whether in our own lives or in the lives of others. Now to the second question we begin this chapter with. Does the use of medication to treat a mental disorder show a lack of faith in the healing power of God? I would say this is no more the cause than using insulin for diabetes, minimizing God's sovereignty. And isn't the sovereignty of God what we are really talking about? Is God in control of all things, or can a physical remedy somehow override his authority? Who's the ultimate agent of healing, God or medicine? The scriptures are full of examples of God using physical remedies to heal illnesses and his people. Let's look at a few. You may have wondered about the title of this chapter, A Cake of Figs. It comes from one of my favorite stories in the Bible, Matthew Stanford's favorite stories in the Bible. The story of King Hezekiah was one of of Judah's greatest kings, perhaps second only to the great King David himself. He became king of Judah at the age of 25, after the death of his evil father, Hezekiah inherited a kingdom far from the Lord, filled with idolatry and pagan religious practices, but he changed all of that. The scriptures tell us that he removed pagan worship from the land and did what was right in the sight of the Lord, 2 Kings 18, 3-4, although he had moments throughout his reign when he doubted God's faithfulness, 2 Kings 18, 5 tells us that no king of Judah before or after trusted the Lord like he did. He was truly God's humble servant. At the age of about 39, Hezekiah became very sick with some type of boil or skin ulcer. The Bible tells us he was mortally ill at the point of death. God sent the prophet Isaiah to tell Hezekiah to set his house in order because he was going to die. As Isaiah was leaving, Hezekiah prayed a very simple and beautiful prayer in which he reminded God of how he had been faithful to God's ways. Before Isaiah left the palace, God told him to return to Hezekiah and tell him he would extend Hezekiah's life by 15 years. Then Isaiah instructed those attending to the king to put a cake of figs on his boil, and Hezekiah recovered. A cake of figs, or what some translations refer to as a pulsifit of figs, was a hot, was hot, soft mass of figs and other ingredients commonly used in ancient times to treat lesions and infections of the skin. What I find so enticing about this story is that God used a common treatment of the day, a physical remedy, to bring about Hezekiah's recovery. God healed Hezekiah, the cake of figs merely the means by which God extended his healing grace. 
The New Testament tells us that Jesus used a very unconventional physical remedy to bring healing on three occasions. He healed three different men by applying his own saliva to their damaged eyes, ears, or tongue, Mark 7, 32-35, 8, 22, and 25, and John 9, 1-7. Why did he use spit in these instances when he typically spoke and the person was healed? The Talmud, an ancient record of Jewish laws and traditions, says the spittle of the firstborn son has healing powers. Now you and I know, as Jesus knew, that saliva from a firstborn son does not heal blindness, deafness, or mutism, but the tradition of the day held stances as a faith-building tool. What I do know is that Jesus, the Messiah, healed these men, and he chose to do it using a common remedy of the day. So what is my point? Should we start using figs and spit as a treatment for modern illnesses? No, of course not. But we should recognize that God is sovereign in all things, including healing. He created a part of us to be biological, and he can choose to remedy problems in that part through uh, biological treatments if he wills. Taking medication for any illness is simply making wise use of the abundant resources provided to us by a loving God, Ezekiel 47:12. He is the almighty God of the universe who made us, saved us, and sustains us, Colossians 1:16-17. As people of faith, we must always remember that God is the ultimate agent of healing, and we should turn to him in times of illness, 2 Chronicles 16:12. Have I convinced you? Mental illnesses are real disorders that have their origins in faulty biological processes. The Bible even supports this by listing madness along with physical problems like boils, tumors, scabs, and blindness. Deuteronomy 28, 27-28 Mental disorders do not discriminate according to faith, but rather affect believers and non-believers alike. While God is always the ultimate agent of healing, he may choose to use physical remedies, including medication, to bring about recovery. And in those times when healing is not a part of his plan, we can rest in the fact that he will provide the endurance and uh, perseverance necessary to perfect and complete our faith. James 1, 2-4 Those of us who know Christ as our Savior were once the recipients of a physical remedy for a terminal illness from which we had no hope of recovery. There was simply no other way we could be healed except through the perfect physical sacrifice. The illness was sin, and the physical remedy was God incarnate. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm so glad that you have made it this far, and I hope I have said something from this book that really has helped you understand. I know these last two chapters really helped me understand some things that I really didn't know about, so hopefully for you, it did the same. Um, I did. Ha- I have left some stuff out that I didn't necessarily think was necessary to put in the podcast, so if you want to maybe learn more or read this for yourself. It is Grace for the Afflicted, a clinical and biblical perspective on mental illness by Matthew S. Stanford. You can find this on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get your books from. And I hope you enjoy this and we'll see you in another week or two.